Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. There may be someone in the world, but I have never met him or her. I have never heard about him or her, and I've never read about him or her. Someone who has never in his or her whole life ever prayed. All the human beings that I've ever come in contact with, at some point in their life, have prayed. Now that's curious, isn't it? That it seems that it's hardwired into human beings that we should speak to God. Now I've met a number of people who no longer pray. For one reason or another, they gave up on prayer. But I don't think I've ever come, I know I've never come across anybody, and I don't know if there's ever existed someone who has never, ever prayed. We saw last week that Jesus said, when you do this, when you do this, and when you do this. He said, don't do it like this, but do it like this. He said, when you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast. And there are probably those who never give to the needy, and those who never fast. But it doesn't seem like there's anyone who never prays. And so we're going to hone in on these instructions today about when you pray. And then we'll talk about next week the Lord's Prayer as a model for prayer. And what we saw last week was Jesus' warning. He said, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, don't do it in order to be seen by others. Because if you do it, playing to a human audience in order to be seen by others, you have received all you will get. You have received a little bit of human 
affirmation or praise. And that is all you're going to get. But if you do this in secret, amazingly, as we saw last week, grace upon grace, God rewards us. He gives us these privileges and then He rewards us for taking advantages of the privileges that He gives us, grace upon grace. Now, here uh, in verses 5 and following, He talks about prayer. If you look at verse 5, and when you pray. In verse 7, and when you pray. I don't want to repeat uh, what we looked at last week, but I do want you to notice that Jesus warns about two types of false praying. And the first type of false praying he mentions is hypocritical praying. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And he says, what do the hypocrites do? They stand in the synagogue, they stand on the street corners, and they pray in order to be seen by others. And Jesus says, they have all they're going to get. They receive their reward from others who are saying, wow, that's a holy person, that's a prayerful person. They've received their reward. So, don't pray like the hypocrites. Now, in another place in the Gospels, Jesus gave a parable, which is a story, an instructive story, and he described hypocritical praying to a T. And it's in Luke chapter 18, it's on page 972, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 12. And here he talks about two men who went to pray. And he says this, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And it says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were the strictest of the strict. They were the ones who were separated from others. They were trying to be holy people and they were very serious about keeping the law. So they were the best of the best of their day. Now it says that one was a Pharisee. The Pharisee went up to pray and the other was a tax collector. The tax collector was the other end of the spectrum in Jewish society. They were the despised because they were collecting taxes from their countrymen in order to pay the Romans and they also tended to pocket a lot for themselves. So here we have these two. The best of the best and the worst of the worst. So, the Pharisee. The Pharisee begins. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. Now, I don't know whether you have this footnote in, in those uh, editions of the Bible, but if you look down at a footnote, it says, or, standing, prayed to himself. Prayed to himself. And that's the simplest reading of the, of the, of the Greek text. So this Pharisee prayed to whom? He prayed to himself. And this is what he said. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? That's a good start to to give thanks for the, the great things that God has done for us or in us, that He's rescued us from various things. He says, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he says why he was so different. And it all was about him. He was praying to himself, and he was praying about himself. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? That he was doing exactly the same three things that Jesus said we should do. When you give to the needy, he says, I tithe. I give 10% of my income. Uh, Jesus said, when you fast, he says, I fast 
twice a week. And he was doing what here? He was praying. So he was doing all of the activities that Jesus commended to us. But he was praying to himself, and he was praying about himself. Why is this hypocritical? Because he's invoking God's name, but he's not addressing God. God is not in the equation here. It's all about himself. He is play-acting. And Jesus said, don't pray hypocritically. Don't uh, involve God's name in this if it's really all about yourself. Now, last week we noted that in contrast to that, going back to the Matthew passage, Jesus recommended that we have time to pray in private. And we talked about carrying on a conversation with God constantly, a wonderful practice to develop. Paul says, pray continually. But here Jesus is talking about special times of prayer when we get Aside, He says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This has been a good lesson for me in this past week. As I mentioned, I use, as most of us do, I use electronic devices for my Bible reading, and I use electronic devices even to keep track of my prayers. But those electronic devices invade my space. It's not, I'm not shutting the door I'm not closing myself off, and this week I've tried to do that more with the device, shutting myself off more from contact with the outside world so that I might pray in secret and uh, address my Father. So he says that's the first thing. Beware of hypocritical praying. This is basically what we looked at last week. But then, in verse 7, he warns against another type of praying. And he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So, uh, hypocritical praying is praying to try to impress others. And Gentile praying, or what we could call pagan praying, is praying in order to impress God. So he says, don't pray in order to impress others, and don't pray in order to impress God. Because if you're praying in order to impress God, that is essentially pagan praying. Now, why is that pagan praying? Uh, it talks about the Gentiles. They think they will be heard. Verse 7. They think they will be heard for their many words. That's Gentile religion. That is the religion of the nations. That is the religion of paganism. It is about a god or gods who are far off, who are inattentive, and who are easily impressed with human beings and are a little bit of eloquence. And so what you need to do in pagan praying is you need to get their attention. And you need to impress them so that they might lend an ear to you. Now, I don't know if Jesus was thinking about this in the Old Testament, but there's a a great example. It's kind of a satirical passage in the Old Testament that emphasizes and exhibits what pagan praying was. There was a prophet. His name was Elijah. And he ministered during the time of one of the most wicked kings of, uh, of Judah. And his name was Ahab. And uh, there was a showdown. It was between Ahab and the prophet Elijah. But Elijah said, bring all your, your pagan prophets. Bring all 450 of your prophets of the god was, was named Baal or Baal, B-A-A-L. Bring all your pagan prophets and let's have a showdown here. He said, let's both offer an offering and we'll call on our gods. You call on your God, I'll call on the true God. And the God who answers by fire, that's the true God. And then he says, you're 450, 
I'll let you go first. And so, these prophets of Baal, they start, they have their offering prepared, and they start. And it says that they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, he was obviously ridiculing them, but that was their concept. How do we know that? Because that's what they did. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That's pagan praying. That is heaping up expressions to try to do what we can to get God's attention. That's the pagan concept of God. And he says, don't pray like that. Why not? Because that's not how God is We don't need to get His attention by our words or even, as they were trying to do, by our blood because we already have His attention. How do we know we have His attention? The reason we know we have His attention is because He sent His Son who gave His blood for us. So we don't come on the basis of our standing before God. We come on the basis of Christ's standing before God if we are believers in Him. Now, We, even if we're Christians, even if we're in Christ, trusting in His blood, we can fall into this pattern. And over the centuries, Christians have fallen into this pattern of of pagan-type praying, of repeating memorized prayers over and over, or reading and reciting memorized prayers or written prayers over and over. And there's nothing wrong with memorized prayers. There's nothing wrong with read prayers. We We have the Psalms are full of them but to repeat them over and over as if the repetition were somehow going to get God's favor and attention is pagan praying. And there's something exceedingly ironic, and that is that it's even possible to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's what's coming next week. The next thing when he says, when you pray, pray like this, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. It's even possible and has happened in the history of the Christian church many times when the Lord's Prayer, even the Lord's Prayer, has been turned into a sort of pagan type of praying. Jesus said, rather, we should pray with simplicity. Look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do you see the contrast here with the, the pagan gods? They don't know what you need. They're not attentive. They're not in tune. But He says, your Father already knows what you need before you ask Him. You don't have to try to get His attention. You don't have to inform Him. You don't have to educate Him. You don't have to impress Him. The basis of this simplicity, the basis of our praying, Jesus says, is that God already knows what you need. He's not far off. He's not uninterested, but intimately acquainted with your needs even before you ask Him. In Psalm 139, verse 4, it says, Even before there's a word on my tongue, you, O Lord, know it. Now, this is interesting because for some, this is a stumbling block. They say, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If He already knows what I'm going to say, and if He already knows what my needs are, why bother praying? 
I don't know whether you've thought that or whether you've asked that. I've had a number of people ask me that question. Why bother if he already knows what we need? Well, there are some good answers to that. Um, One is this. And by, by the way, this is really a specific instance of the more general question of why do anything if God is in control? If God has already planned out everything and is in control, why bother doing anything? This is just a specific instance of that. Why bother praying if He already knows what we need? Why bother doing anything if He already has everything under His control? And there's some good and sufficient answers to this question. One is very simple. God has told us to do these things. That's sufficient. He's instructed us to pray. That's sufficient reason to pray. But there's another one. If, if that doesn't satisfy our curiosity, and the other answer is this, God has ordered the universe in such a way that He is entirely in control and our actions and our prayers matter. They're significant. Now, if you ask me how that functions, that's above my pay grade and above yours as well. But that's what the Bible teaches, that God is in control of all things and our actions and our prayers make a difference. They matter. Let me further answer this question by asking some other questions. Why would we bother praying to a God who already knows what we need? Let me turn that around. Why would we bother praying to a God who doesn't know what we need? Which would you prefer? (laughs) To pray to a God who needs information from you? To pray to a God who needs educated by you? To pray to a God who needs informed by you? Or to pray to a God who already knows what you need? Which would you prefer? This is not a problem. This is a benefit. This is why he's saying, pray because God already knows what you need. That's the kind of God we need. A God who knows and answers. Another question we could ask to answer this question is, why do children bother to speak to their parents? In general, do parents know what children need? Yes. They know what they need. Why do children bother to speak to their parents? Or... Why do parents delight when their children speak to them? Why don't they just stop them and say, I know what you need. You need food. You need clothing. You need this. You need that. I got it. I'll take care of it. Why do parents delight when children come to them and say, Mom, Dad, this is what I need. The parent doesn't delight because he or she has received new information. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. The parent delights because of the relationship. And that's what's so amazing about what we'll see next week. How does the Lord's Prayer start? It starts with our Father, which teaches us that prayer, what is it? It's not educating God. It's not informing God. It's a family activity. It's a family conversation for those who are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Those are the first two. Aspects of prayer. Don't pray like the hypocrites, but pray in secret. Don't pray like the pagans, but pray with simplicity to your Father. And now we're going to jump over the Lord's Prayer that we'll be looking at next week and look at the last instruction about how to pray in verse 14. And he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is a comment that Jesus makes to amplify one of the petitions that we'll be looking at next week. 
And that's the one we pray today. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And now he makes a comment on that after the prayer. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It says very clearly that if we do not forgive others their offenses against us, we will not be forgiven. Very clear. And if we do forgive, we will be forgiven. Now, we ought not to interpret that in a way that contradicts what the Bible says about forgiveness. We ought not to interpret it this way. If we forgive others, we will be forgiven because we have forgiven others. That's, that's not what it says. That would be a, an illegitimate uh, conclusion that we are forgiven because we are forgiven others. Sort of an exchange. God will forgive us in exchange for our forgiving others. Now, why can't we interpret it that way? Because if we did, it would be going against what the Bible teaches all throughout about forgiveness. How may we be forgiven? Through activity on our part? No. Through activity on God's part. By sending His Son to pay for our sins so that they might be liquidated and so that we might receive pardon. That's how we're forgiven. So, in light of that, good news, how ought we to read these verses? If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not, your Heavenly Father will not forgive yours. The way to interpret this in, in, in keeping with the gospel message is this. If you forgive others, God will forgive you because the fact that you forgive others means that you are a forgiven person. And if you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you because your inability to forgive others shows that you know nothing of God's forgiveness in the first place. So which is first? God's forgiveness or ours? God's forgiveness. And what does God's forgiveness do for us? It transforms us into forgiving people. So, who are those who have their sins forgiven? The forgiven. And who are those who forgive? The forgiven. So, a forgiving heart is evidence of a forgiven heart. An unforgiving heart is evidence of an unforgiven heart. To say it um, another way, if you have God's forgiveness, you will forgive. If you don't know God's forgiveness, you will not forgive. And therefore, you will not be forgiven. Why? Because you know nothing of God's forgiveness. Is this making sense? So it's not an exchange. God, I'll do this in exchange for that. Rather, God takes the initiative. God offers us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And when we experience that that forgiveness in Jesus Christ, He gives us the ability to forgive. Now, forgiveness is very difficult. And some of you, I'm sure, I know some of the details of some of the things that some of you have suffered, and I'm sure that there are other things that I don't know about and maybe nobody knows about or very few people know about in your life. But I know that, that some here have suffered very, very grave offenses by other people that have seriously affected your lives or the lives of other people. And slight offenses are hard enough to forgive, but serious offenses are exceedingly difficult 
to forgive. And so I don't want to pass over this lightly as if this were some easy thing to do. Forgiveness is never an easy thing, uh, particularly when the offense is grave and when the consequences are deep and when they are lasting. Even so, or I should say especially so, especially so, there's a helpful exercise that we can do when, when others sin against us and when we are struggling to be able to, to grant them forgiveness. The exercise that Jesus commends to us is to put in the balance their sins against us on one side and on the other side of the balance our sins against God. Jesus told a parable. It's also in Matthew, and it's in chapter 18 on page 913. And Peter had a question. And this is what provoked this this parable. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Matthew 18.21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter thought to be very magnanimous. And he said, As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, or possibly seventy times seven times. And therefore he told a parable. And he said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 10,000 talents, that was a vast fortune. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days' wages, not insignificant, but nothing like the, the, the talents. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw What had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And there's the conclusion, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the problem here? The problem is that he didn't understand the Master's forgiveness. And that's where it starts. That's, that's where we need to start as well. As we look at the offenses against us, and please, I'm not minimizing. Some of you have suffered deeply and the consequences are lasting and the scars are deep in your lives or in the lives of those you love. But even so, if we put those offenses on the balance with all of our offenses against the Master, they're small in comparison. 
And if we grasp how great has been God's forgiveness of all of our trespasses in Christ, all of our sins, then that won't make it easy. But that will make it possible for us to forgive others their offenses. There was one man who understood this. We left the Pharisee praying to himself. We didn't talk about the other man, did we? There was the Pharisee praying to himself and praying about himself, and now it was the tax collector's turn. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And actually it says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Because he was the only sinner about whom he was concerned at that moment. He had just been publicly insulted. Do you realize that? He had been belittled by the Pharisee, who out loud had just said, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. He had just been publicly humiliated and offended, but he wasn't worried about that offense. He said, God, be merciful to me. The sinner, I'm the only one around. I'm the only one at this moment with whom I'm concerned. I'm the one who needs your mercy. I'm the one who needs your forgiveness. And then Jesus' conclusion, He says, I tell you, this man, who's this man? Tax collector, the worst of the worst. This man went down to his house justified. There's that word, we saw it all through the book of Galatians, didn't we, that we just studied. Justified, made right before God. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. The worst of the worst was justified. The best of the best was left praying to himself. And he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's a model for us, for our prayers. A simple prayer, wasn't it? And he prayed, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. One of the most difficult things that we're called on to do if we are Christians is to forgive others. Maybe the most difficult thing that we're called upon to do. But it is also one of, if not, the most Christian thing that we are called upon to do, to forgive others. And why is that? Because Christianity is all about forgiveness. And forgiveness will be costly to the one who forgives. We will have to refuse to demand that they satisfy. Refuse to demand that they pay back all that they owe to us. That will be costly to us. We will not be able to take vengeance upon them. We will have to release them and bear the consequences ourselves. But you see, God never pretended like forgiveness was not costly. On the contrary, forgiveness is the most costly gift imaginable. So costly that it cost God the life of His Son. Let's pray. Our Father... We thank You that we can use those words as we come to You, those who have faith in Jesus.
And I pray for all of us that we would have faith in Jesus, that we might approach you as Father, not as a God far off whom we have to placate, but a God who is drawn near in Jesus Christ, who gave his life for all who will pray, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I pray, O God, for our prayers, for my prayers, that you you would enable us to pray in secret, that you would enable us to pray with simplicity to our Father, and that you would enable us to do that most difficult and most Christian of things, that we would be able to pray with forgiveness in our hearts toward others, because we, by your mercy, have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.